Every now and then, the overseers get um, the opportunity to uh, take the pulpit and preach the sermon, and so it's my turn this week. I'm really excited to, uh, to preach this passage with you and um, to walk through a really critical part of the New Testament, actually, uh, from our series in 2 Corinthians. But before we get to that passage, um, I want to tell you a story about me when I was a child and use this story to illustrate why knowing, knowing only half of a story um, can be really hard, can be really confusing to only have the first half of a story and not the rest of the story, to be a little bit confused about what was the point of what I just heard. Um, it's just not fun. It's awkward. It's misleading. It's uh, you name it. Reading one chapter of a book and not the rest of the book, uh, you just don't get a full idea of what exactly is going on. So when I was a child, probably like five or six years old, I don't remember this. This is something my parents talk about. Um, going to my church, Growing up in Rochester, my parents were really involved. We did a lot of things with the church. They still do, same church. And um, when I was young, the church had a talent show, you know, bring a song, sing a song, or whatever it is. And me at five or six years old, my dad and I, probably more my dad than me, (laughs) planned out a skit that we were going to do for this talent show. So we decided we wanted to act out the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you know this story, Jesus tells this parable in the Gospels about a guy who's on a trip and some robbers jump out, they beat him up, they rob him, they leave him for dead, they run away. And so he's like laying in the road, left for dead. And then three super religious men walk by and they see him and they decide not to help him. And then eventually a Samaritan, which is a a race of people that the Jews really hated, walks by and he does help this Jewish man. Um, and, you know, pays for his lodging, pays for his medical attention, all of that stuff. And Jesus is using this to, to make a point to someone who's like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do good to my neighbor, but who exactly is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story to sort of show him like, you know, even a Samaritan helping a Jew uh, is probably outside your sphere, but this is, this is the kind of person that you should, you should help. It doesn't matter who they are, etc. Anyway, back to the skit. The plan was my dad would play the guy who gets robbed and beaten up and left for dead. And I, the five or six-year-old Peter Carlson, would play all the other roles, one at a time. All right? It would be a really great idea. Really cool, this kid, right? So, my dad's walking across the stage. A five-year-old jumps out, pretends to beat him up. My dad falls down on the ground. is like, oh, ow, no, I've been robbed. Help, someone help. And then I run away. And the plan was hide under the first pew, get the costume change or whatever, and then come back out. But when I went to hide under the pew, I hit my head. And for a five-year-old to hit his head, I was like, I, I apparently, it hurt quite a bit. And I decided, I'm just going to have to stay down here and cry. And I'm not going to let on that anything's wrong because I'm too embarrassed. So I'm just going to quietly cry under the pew and let that happen back there. So my dad's just laying on the stage. Ow, will someone just help me? Someone I've been hurt. I've been robbed. I'm left for dead. Is someone, someone help me? Would anyone? And then no one came. And eventually, my dad had to stand up and be like, and seen, and then leave. And oh, Peter's hurt down there. I guess that's the end, everyone. Sorry, that's the story. And that was it. And I have to imagine that, like, I mean, probably kind of cute now knowing what it was, but if, if someone had never heard that parable before, like, what exactly did I just see? What is this story? So a guy got beat up. And the end. That's the story. I don't understand it at all. I don't know why that was part of this show <laughs> at all. Um, that's, it's unclear, right? Maybe even 
kind of discouraging. Like, if that's the point that they're supposed to get across, like, a guy got beaten up and left for dead, that's it, live with it. You know, it's, that's pretty discouraging and kind of sad. I mean, the audience needed that second half to play out to understand what that first part of the story even meant, right? We need that resolution. We need to see him getting help to understand what the point of that parable even was. So right now, we're in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been in this series for a little over a month probably. And today, Paul, the author of this letter to this church in Corinth, is going to get into some of these theological concepts that the Corinthians really need to hear because they've been focusing on the first part of a story and missing out on the second half of the story where everything starts to make sense. They are living out only the first half of salvation history and just missing the point a bit on what the second half of the story reveals to them. So I'm calling this sermon The Letter and the Spirit. And we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. So let's start by reading the whole passage all at once, and then we'll come back around and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit. Okay, so turn in your Bibles if you like, or your phone app, whatever you have, or read it on the screen uh, along with me. Paul writes this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts." Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. So we need 
to start out, we're, I'm going to break this up into three sections. And the first section we need to start out with is this idea of this letters of recommendation. What is going on with that? And we need some historical context. And we're going to look at this section about Paul's resume, okay? So what, what exactly is the situation here? What is, what is Paul talking about? What is going on in the church? Well, Paul planted this church in Corinth. We've sort of been talking about this along the way in this series. Planted the church, grew the church, moved on to plant other churches in different places later on. And after he departed, more Christian leaders showed up in Corinth and came to this church and sort of picked up that leadership mantle. And a lot of these leaders that showed up came with really thick packets of credentials sort of boasting of their prior successes that they brought along like, just so you know, I have this, so you should probably listen to me. And at the same time that they're doing that, that they're showing up with, you know, these resumes or these packets of references, they're criticizing Paul and his perceived lack of references and qualifications. And really like kind of saying to the Corinthians, so, uh, Paul used to be here, and I see he's still kind of a big deal. He still has a voice. He's writing you letters and stuff. But, I mean, did you ever check his references when he showed up? Did you do that homework? And in doing that, questioning that, they're really sort of throwing his preaching into question by questioning his record. I mean, there's a little bit of irony here that me, not the main preacher at Hiawatha Church, is preaching this passage because, I mean, what if I came up here and said, I hear that you've been listening to Chris and Spencer a lot lately, and I'm here to tell you that I'm way more qualified than those guys. Way more qualified. I brought a whole bunch of references with me from other churches that I've been at, and every church that I've been at has thrived financially and has had way more people start attending while I was there. And I actually got pretty wealthy from bringing those churches along with me, turning those little churches into mega churches. And as you can clearly see, God is blessing my ministry. And those guys that you used to hear preach, not so much. Actually, they're pretty weak. Actually, they're suffering. Actually, when they come to town, they can't even afford a hotel. They sleep on other people's couches. Just say it. I'm kind of a bigger deal than them. That's not what you want in a leader. You want someone like me. Actually, God wants someone like me. God wants a strong leader who's got all of these qualifications behind him. I got here just in time because I'm going to show you how to be a real Christian like me. That would be pretty terrible if I stood up here and said that. Like, just awkward, right? And uh, that's what's going on in this Corinthian church. They're hearing stuff like that, and they're actually sitting back and going, they might have a point. Paul is poor, and when he visits cities, he has to sleep on people's couches, and he's kinda, kind of a weak dude. Maybe, that's, maybe there's something to that. And apparently, they're writing letters to Paul, I'm like, hey, I know that you've already been here before, but I'm wondering if you could send me a letter uh, with some references so I can know whether or not what you said to me, uh, if I should believe it, because I, I'm not sure about this. Well, Paul spent a couple chapters in this book already talking about suffering and weakness and saying, actually, that's the mark of Christianity. Christ suffered. That's actually the real mark of Christian leadership, not all this earthly success. A successful ministry is actually never free from hardship and suffering. And you can listen back to those sermons on the podcast feed if you want. I'm not going to go there, but that's what Paul's saying in the earlier chapters of this book. But what about these credentials? What about this idea? Does Paul need a letter of recommendation? Does he need to prove his apostleship to them or to others? Does he need a, a really big, robust resume or a huge, giant LinkedIn profile? Does he need something like that? 
before people will believe the Spirit is with him and in his ministry. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, Paul has a really good resume when you think about it in terms of the law because he was a Pharisee. So he was super good at following all the Jewish laws. And he talks about it in other letters where he's like, here's a list of all the things I had going for me as far as the Jewish law goes. Like, I did all this stuff right. My parents did all this stuff right. I, did all, I followed all these laws, etc. And then he gets to a point where he's like, and now looking back, I consider that stuff garbage next to knowing Christ. Just so you know, I threw away my resume. I don't care about that anymore. So no, he does not need a letter of recommendation. He does not need a huge resume. And he tells the Corinthians, look, look around you at what's going on in your church, Corinthians. Just look around. Do you see how the Spirit has worked in you and among you from from my teaching? Do you see how the Spirit has moved? Your changed hearts are a more important sign of Paul's spiritual authority, he's, he's saying, than a document would be. I could... If you wanted me to show you documents, fine, but don't, don't you see that you all came to Christ? Don't you see that the Holy Spirit is moving in your church? Yeah, you're broken. A lot of stuff is going wrong, but the Holy Spirit is still among you right now. Isn't that a bigger deal to you? In verse 3, Paul is saying, and you show, church, you show that you are a letter. You're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink like a letter of recommendation would be, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And I really like this analogy that Paul is saying. He's like, Let's, you want to talk about a letter that proves that the ministry is real? Well, you're the letter. You're the church. You're the people that believed the, the gospel when I preached it. I mean, you're the letter. And the way that he sort of makes this list. He says, like, you are a letter. The letter is from Christ. So it's, it's written by Jesus, and it's delivered by us, Paul and, all, and his team. This is, this is the deal. Christ wrote a letter in the fact that you believed, and we're just the delivery people. That's, that's what we're talking about. I really like that analogy. And I mean, the, the letter is delivered by Paul and team to essentially to the world, right? Christ wrote this letter. You're the letter. We're the deliverers. And the receivers are everyone around you who sees the work of the Spirit among the church. It's a really cool word picture. Okay? The church is the letter. And then he says, it's written with the Spirit of the living God. And then he says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And this is where we start to see this pivot because Paul is now going to use this idea, this idea of letters of recommendation and and resumes and things. He's going to use that idea and he's going to make it a launch pad for a discussion about theology. And it's a really important discussion about theology that's really relevant to us today. Paul's going to start talking about old covenant versus new covenant. This is covenant theology. It's really crucial passage for us as, as believers in the New Testament because Paul is using this idea of changed hearts being more important than a stacked resume of success. He's going to use that to go deep into covenant theology. And if that is a new term for you, great, because we're going to unpack it in just a second, okay? If you're brand new to Christianity, that you, you've never come to church, you read the Bible before, this is great for you. If you're just checking it out, you have a little bit of experience, but not much, this is great for you. And if you've been a Christian for years, this is a highly important theology for you. It really matters to your lives. I'm serious. So as we unpack this, think this through and see how this reflects on your own 
uh, place in your faith, okay? So, Paul's resume, we're going to move now into this idea of covenant theology, and Paul has the covenants compared and contrasted in this next section of verses, verses 4 through 11. So, this is what he says next. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then later he says, the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. So there it is again, this carved in letters of stone idea. Okay? So all this talk about resumes, performance, references, Paul is saying that stuff is not in line with the reality of the gospel. And Paul's thinking, if they're asking these questions about letters of recommendation and sort of ignoring the work of the Spirit among them, I need to preach about this. I need to set this straight a little bit because this is bigger than just a weakness of wanting to see some success. This is a spiritual issue. So Paul's going to go in on this and start pressing in and saying, I need to correct this a little bit theologically for you because you're placing more value in the earthly success idea than you are in the actual work of the Spirit that you have seen in and among you as a church. And Paul says it's, it's not about the letter, but about the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So now, you see, we're not really just talking about these letters of recommendation or this whole idea of, of resumes and things like that, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills? Are we ta- are we... Paul is starting to turn, Okay. We're not just talking about letters of recommendation anymore. We're talking about letters carved in stone. And if you've read the Bible at all, that might tip you off that we're talking about something given to Moses, carved in letters on stone tablets. We're talking about the famous Ten Commandments. Maybe you're familiar. They've made a bunch of movies about them. The Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus. The law of God written down on a stone tablet and handed to Moses to give to the people of Israel way back in the second book of the Bible. And Paul is going to compare and contrast Old Covenant and New Covenant by talking about letters in stone, Ten Commandments, versus human hearts and the Spirit here in 2 Corinthians. This is covenant theology. So, before we go too far, let's talk about covenants. What exactly is a covenant? What do we mean when we say that? A covenant is a relational agreement or a promise between two parties or between two people. So think about like the covenant of marriage that we talk about. What is the covenant of marriage? It's how two people make a promise to each other. They make vows to each other standing on a stage or something in a church and say, I vow this. And the other person says, I vow this. We, we have a covenant between us of marriage. We agree this is how we will interact. This is what I will do for you. This is what you will do for me, etc. And God is setting up in Exodus that type of agreement between himself and his people or, or us. The old covenant was given to Moses. It included a big set of laws. And God is saying, I will be in relationship with you. I will protect you. I will do this for you. And what you will do is you will keep my laws perfectly. That's, that's the covenant. That's the arrangement. So he poses this question to the Israelite people. Do you agree to these 
to these vows? Do you agree to these terms? And the people said, yeah, we do. This sounds like a great deal. You give us a list of things to do, and it's only 10 things. We do them, and then we have an invincible God king? I think we're cool. I think this is going to work really, really well. And the people quickly learned that they actually could never hold up their end of the bargain, right? Because, again, think about that scene from the Ten Commandments. Moses has the tablets, and he's looking at them. He's like, okay, so rule number one is have no gods before me. All right, I'm going to go down, and I'm going to tell the people. And as soon as he gets down the mountain, he sees that they have built an idol, and they're worshiping it. And he's like, no! He smashes the tablets right away. He's like, it's over. It's over. We just set the vow up, and they already broke. It's over. We're done. I smash them right away. It's over. And God, like, basically calls him back up and is like, just come, come back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write him down again on another set of tablets. I understand your angst about this. Yeah, they cannot keep these laws. But I'm going to use this law to set up a second half of the salvation story. And when Moses comes back down with the rules and they're like, sorry, sorry about all that, sorry about all that, we will for sure keep all these laws, no problem, we're really going to do it, and they obviously still can't. And undergirding all of that vow making and that covenant, God says, here's, here's how it's going to work out because I know you're not going to keep all the rules. So instead, I'm going to also have some laws that say, if you ever break these rules, and you will every single day, you're going to have to take an innocent animal and kill it and spill its blood and look at it, look at the gross blood and guts of an animal and say, that's what I deserve for breaking the laws, but because I've killed this innocent animal, me, the guilty person, can live for a while longer. This is the Old Covenant. So if you've read the Old Testament and been sort of like uncomfortable with all of this, like sacrificing and stuff, like you are not alone. The Old Covenant was impossible to keep. It was frustrating. It was repetitive. It was bloody. It was only the first half of a really good and wonderful story, but by itself, it was unfulfilling and confusing and depressing. But this was by design. God didn't mess up by putting an inferior plan together and had to fix it later. No, no. God set up the real plan, the real fulfillment with this early old covenant. They work, they work together. It was just that the people of Israel couldn't see it back then and the Corinthians can't see it now. And here's kind of the weird thing about all this. We as humans actually love the old covenant mentality. The Corinthians did. They, I mean, this is an illustration here in 2 Corinthians 3 that they value the old covenant. They like the sound of the old covenant. Because we as humans actually insist that we can handle things on our own, just like the Israelites you know, here's the impossible law, and they're like, I got this, no problem. We are like that too. And later in the Old Testament, for another example, Israel looked around at all the nations around them and said, they all have these like big, strong, tall, human kings, and we don't have a king, and that's probably bad. Like, we should have the same kind of king that they have. And God's like, yeah, but you have me as your king. I'm like, I'm like the God king. You don't even have to fight your battles. I like go out there and do it for you. And they're like, yeah, but we want a human king because it's cool and everybody else has that. And he's like, okay, God says, I will allow you to have a human king, but I'm telling you right now, you're not going to like it. It will be less cool than me being your king. But okay, here, find a king. And they're like, I picked the tallest, best looking guy and it's Saul. And Saul's a bad king. And God's like, 
I could have told you that you can't do it by yourself. Humans cannot do it by themselves. But God allows that to play out because he wants to illustrate it, to teach them, to let them see for themselves. We crave the law because we actually believe we can follow it. Another example, the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus had tons of disagreements with these guys. They were the super ultra best religious people in the Jewish community back then. And they would say, I keep every rule of the law perfectly. I do it perfectly. I am blameless. And yeah, there are a lot of people who can't, but guess what? I can because I'm the best. And Jesus got into way more arguments with those kind of people than with people who are like, yeah, I can't do it. Is there any, is there any way that you could help? He got into way more arguments with the Pharisees, um, reminding them that, no, they're, they're not keeping the law. You might think you are, but you really are not keeping the law. You're a hypocrite when you say that you can keep the law perfectly when you rely on yourself. And Matthew chapter 5 is where he has this really long sermon directed towards his followers, but also the Pharisees who are there primarily. And he's talking to these people and Section after section starts with this phrase, you have heard it said blank, but I tell you second blank. And these are things like, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's from the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, if you even look at another person with lust in your heart, you already have committed adultery. To which the Pharisees would be like, hmm, disagree. Or he says, You have heard it said, don't kill another person, Ten Commandments. And I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart or if you call them a name, you have murdered them. That's the law. That's what the law really is. And at the end of this whole long sermon, he sort of pounds the final nail and says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that should sort of leave us going, whoa, what? I mean, perfect I thought it was just 10 rules that I had to keep, but now you're saying I have to be perfect, and this involves things I even think about or things that happen in my heart, but I never actually do them with my hands? Well, that's actually impossible, God. That's, that is just not achievable, so I don't know what you're, what you're expecting. So if that's the case, when God gives the law in Exodus... It's not a blessing to the people. It's a judgment to the people because it demonstrates to humanity that we are sinful. It demonstrates that we are unable to be perfect as hard as we may try. We cannot justify ourselves before a God that is perfect. We can't do it. So giving people the law is not helpful. It's a judgment. It says in Romans 5.20, Paul wrote this too, He's talking about the law, the old covenant. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Not to make it better. Not to make sin better, to make sin worse. God's saying, he's not saying, if I just give them a checklist so they know how, then they can do it. Then they can be perfect. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, okay, here's the standard if you want to see it but you're not able to actually do it. So, I mean, try if you like, but you're going to fail. This is the reality of the Old Covenant. You will fail. But if you want to see it, here it is. If you want a human king, try it. See, it's a fail. I'm, I'm telling you this. This is what God is saying to us. 
Okay? This is true for all of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. We want to be given the instructions. We want to be given a checklist to go do and then come back feeling good about ourselves. I am the prime example of this. My personality type is give me the checklist, give me the deadline, and I will make it happen. That's how I do things at work. It's how it is. The problem is the checklist could ever only be completed by a perfect God, not by us. If it's on us to do it, we're going to fail. And the Bible says if you fail, you die. You die forever. It's over for you. The old covenant is death. It's increasing the trespass. But the great news is this. The old covenant is old. It's part one of the whole of the salvation story. If you only have part one, you're going to be like my dad, laying on the stage being like, is this really the story? Is this all there is? I got beaten up and left for dead and that's the end. I'm not satisfied with this. What is going on? But Paul brings up the old covenant for a reason. He brings it up so that he can properly talk about the new covenant. Romans 5.20, the second half of this passage, right after Paul says, the law came in to make things worse, not better. As soon as he says that, here's what he says next. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And getting back to Matthew 5, where Jesus had that big sermon about the hypocritic Pharisees, he starts that by saying, well, and I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To complete it. To close the book on the old covenant. Jesus came to bring in a new covenant. A better covenant. And he does that by closing the book on the Old Covenant, closing the book on the Ten Commandments, closing the book on the Old Testament law. And now, a new covenant has come through Christ. So Paul is laying out this this history and this argument, and now he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New to illustrate to the the people in Corinth in 2 Corinthians what the old, Old Covenant is versus the New and which one is better. So here's our handy table. Old Covenant is about the letter. The New Covenant is about the Spirit. The Old Covenant, the letter, kills, but the New gives life. You've got tablets of stone on the Old versus written on human hearts. Condemnation versus righteousness. Temporary versus permanent. Veiled versus unveiled. Bondage to sin and law versus freedom from those things. And then Paul says, there was glory in the old covenant, but there's more glory in the new covenant. And the reason he's saying that is we we can't just ignore the old covenant like it's nothing. It's something. It's just there's a purpose to it with more glory coming through the new covenant. And the Old Testament even has previews of what the new covenant is going to be. Thousands, year, thousands of years before Jesus was born, before this new covenant entered the world, it was written about. Here's Jeremiah 31. This is so great because he just comes out and says, here's what the new covenant is going to be when it arrives. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, you ready? For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just like Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, right? Written on their hearts, written into the hearts of God's people and not written on stone tablets. It's coded into us when we are remade, when we believe. It's coded into us. Way better, way better. And that brings us to this last section where Paul's going to talk about this idea of a veil. Let's look at verses 12 through 18 now. Let's read the first part of it here. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, the new covenant, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So understanding this fact that the old covenant has passed away, has been closed and fulfilled by Christ, gives us hope and boldness Willingness to take a veil off or have the veil lifted for us. Trying to keep the law doesn't change hearts. Just read the Old Testament. The Old, the Old Testament Israelites had the law. It did not change them. Their relationship with God was always through a veil because they didn't see the new covenant at that time in history. But more than that, veil makes us think of curtain curtains were in the history of Israel as well. So you've got Moses coming down from the mountain with the law and he had been with God and because he was with God, his face was bright because he had like absorbed some of God's glory from being in the presence of God. He comes down with this bright shining face and the Israelites are like, oh, put a lampshade on your head for goodness sake. You see, they're like, this, this picture is so funny. Like he's got a, Chris said it's a bucket. It's like a bucket on his head. And it's not because they were like, oh man, this is so cool, it's just a little bright, so I need, I need a, little, a little shade and then I can, I can pay attention to you. No, the Bible says that they were afraid. They were afraid of the glory that was showing from Moses' face because it was from the perfect God who had given them the rules they can't follow. And so they're like, could you cover it up and then maybe we can listen. In other places it says like they, they covered their ears when Moses would talk about the law because it was so bad newsy to them. They wanted it covered. They had the law. All they had to do was keep it, but they knew they couldn't do it. Being an impossible law, being held to account for that is very scary because it's about bondage and weight without Christ. And even later, when they built a temple 
a brick temple to God in Jerusalem. There was a part of the temple that was behind a curtain, and no one could go in there. And that's where they, the presence of God was. And they said, nobody can go through that curtain. One day a year, one guy can go in there with a sacrifice. Otherwise, no. And the, the reason was they were afraid they would die in there because they're sinful. And God is perfect. It was there to hide God from his people. There were strict rules. The Ark of the Covenant was in there behind that curtain. And in the Old Testament, there are stories of people accidentally touching the Ark of the Covenant and instantly dying, even if it was an accident, because they are sinful. It's like the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene, right? Like, I can open this and then everybody's dead. That's how it happens. Moses couldn't even look directly at God's glory, and when he was near him, he had this bright face that people were scared of. All of this stuff is just law, 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 bad news, separation from God. Nobody comes through this, this veil or curtain ever. No way. Cut to the New Testament now. Jesus, who is the fullness of God, is born into the world in Bethlehem. They lay him down in a manger, like a a food trough for animals. Lots of people looked at him. Lots of people touched him. Lots of people held him. His parents changed his diapers. Adult Jesus, he touched people all the time. Nobody died from it. Actually, the reverse happened sometimes. He invited people to touch him. He touched people who were sick and unclean. He told his disciples after his resurrection to put their hands on his scars, put their hands like into the wound on his side that was still there. He shared meals with people. He fed people from his own hands. He shared cups with people, something that like, especially today, is like no way. But Jesus did that. He laughed with people over dinner, over drinks, over weddings. He danced with people. He had all kinds of relationships and friendships. I mean, something clearly changed because if God is able to do stuff like that with sinful people, then something is very different than what we see in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant times. And the difference is that Jesus is here. Jesus has died. When Jesus died, the temple curtain that you see here was torn in two from top to bottom, revealing that place behind that no one was supposed to go. That forbidden area that God was said to reside in was exposed to everybody working in the temple, and it was okay, and nobody died. Clearly, something's different. Jesus had died. That's the difference. The new covenant had come. There's a really great kids that's also good for grown-ups called the Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. If you've read this, it's great. If you haven't, you should, you should read it, especially if you have kids, because it lays out all this stuff, and it says, God put that curtain there in the temple, and it was like a keep-out sign. You are not allowed in here. It's a keep-out sign because you are sinful, and I am perfect, and we cannot be together. But when Jesus died, it says, God ripped up that keep-out sign and said, everybody can come in who wants to. It's all good. That's because of the new covenant. Something has changed. No longer did God interact with humanity through a heavy law that we could never keep. And instead, Jesus perfectly fulfilled that law. And he himself became the way to God, that new covenant. And it's really important to remember that Jesus didn't come and say, hey, the old covenant didn't matter at all. Let's just forget it. Let's discard it. It's pointless, 
and let's do something completely different that will work better. Jesus does not say that. Remember, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So instead, he says, I will perfectly fulfill all of the law for you so that it's done. The checklist is complete. And then I will die to make a new covenant with you and God. So the law, the old covenant matters. It has some glory, but it's not more glory. It's not full glory. It's the first part. It's not the end part. Through Christ, the veil has been taken away. The curtain has been ripped. It says, remember verse 15? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The curtain is torn. This is new covenant stuff when we turn to the Lord. The veil can be removed. The curtain can be torn. There's another preview of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes this. God speaking, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hearts of stone, tablets of stone, hearts of flesh from Jesus' flesh. You see, when Moses comes down with these stone tablets and he says, this is the covenant with God, the people say, this is terrible. I, don't, I can't even look at you or listen to you right now because this is, this is bad. This is not a happy covenant to me. When Jesus is on the cross making a new covenant with the people, do you see in this, in this ancient painting, people coming to him, clinging to him, not cowering, but approaching, touching Stone tablets versus flesh hearts because of Christ's flesh torn on that tree. God is saying in Ezekiel, I will remove the stone tablets and I will give you the spirit. I will remove the old covenant. I'll give you the new covenant. I'm going to remove the veil. I'm going to show you my full glory through Jesus Christ. The new covenant completes this whole story. It makes the first half make more sense because we have the second covenant, the new covenant, the better covenant covenant. We can see now that the the old covenant is a letter written on stone that kills, but the new covenant is spirit that gives life. And that's where we find this idea of freedom. Paul comes to this point at the end. See, he starts with saying in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And we all, in verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The old covenant is the opposite of all of these things. Not confidence, it's doubt. It's hopelessness. It's veils, curtains. It's brokenness without transformation. But the new covenant is all of these things. Confidence and hope Unveiled faces, transformed hearts. 
So we, when we believe, when we turn to the Lord and believe and that veil is removed, we can be bold, we can be free like Paul is, like he's expressing to the Corinthians and saying, this comes from the Lord because the Lord is the Spirit who does this. We can look directly at the glory of God without fear. There's no curtain or veil because Jesus tore it with his death. And when we stand before God someday on judgment day, should we be thinking to ourselves, did I bring my letters of recommendation? Do I have a thick enough resume so that God will be pleased and actually let me in? Should that be our thought? That was what the Second, the second Corinthians audience is dealing with. Should that be our thought? No. There's no scales of judgment on the judgment day that God will say, all right, put your resume there and I'm going to put all your sins here and I hope that the resume is heavier. That is not what's happening. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it talks about judgment day and it says there are two books and one is a book of deeds. One is a book of resumes. But Revelation says, when that book is opened, everyone who's ever lived fails. None of it is good enough. The old covenant doesn't justify anybody. You don't want to show up with your letters. Instead, Revelation says there's another book that's opened and all that's in it is names. Not what they did, just their names. The names that were written down by the Spirit on the hearts of people who believed. And that's it. That is the new covenant. And that is good news to us. We can carry confidence to judgment day because of Christ, because of the new covenant, because we have said the old covenant with its letter written on stone is done for me. Christ finished it at the cross and said it's finished. And we can have boldness and confidence and freedom in our lives now and on judgment day. So let's finish with three things to remember as we leave. First of all, just don't rely on the letter. Don't let that be part of your life. Don't lean on your resumes, your performance, your work, your success. Those things are going to let you down. Those things are going to kill us, Paul says. When you spend time with God here in this room on Sunday mornings or at home reading your Bible and praying these great things, don't go into those times thinking it's like a performance review where you need to show proof to God of your spiritual success that week or that day or else. That's the old covenant. That is the old covenant. We all default to that. We want that in some way. But Paul is saying, do not rely on the letter. That letter is finished. That covenant is done. Instead, believe in Jesus and the veil will be lifted. Paul says, the curtain is already torn by the Spirit through Christ for us. Only through Jesus can we understand the second half of the salvation story. We don't, we don't find ourselves left hanging with only the old covenant. Our way to God's presence and glory has already been cleared by Jesus. The ways of the old covenant are no longer needed. We need the new covenant. So, believe and then live boldly in light of that new covenant. When we believe the Spirit enters our hearts, changes us from the inside out, not the other way around like the law would say, inside out, written on our hearts by the Spirit. When that's the case, when we believe that new covenant, we can live boldly 
with confidence, all of those things that Paul says, because we know there's for us in the good news of the new covenant that Jesus Christ has died for our sins to close the old covenant and he's written by his spirit in our hearts that we are justified before a perfect God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word today. Thank you that you have made a way for us back to God when we could not do it. Thank you for the new covenant in your blood that you purchased for us on the cross. I pray that you would help us to not live like we are still under the old covenant, not to rely on our resumes, our successes, our performance before you, but instead that we would rest and have confidence and boldness that the work has been done for us at the cross and live in light of the Spirit in the new covenant. I pray this in your name. Amen.